Is that what I'm saying? Rough trade radio. 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 Hello and welcome back to the Rough Trade Podcast, coming to you this week from my kitchen. I must apologise because I'm without a studio this week, so I'm making do at home, so do bear with me. Um, hope you all had an amazing record store day on Saturday. If you joined us at Rough Trade, I am sure that you will agree it was another brilliant year of celebrations led by some truly awesome performances. If you managed to get your hands on one of the special podcast flyers that were going around, you'll see we did a shout out for song requests. For a special record store day throwback episode which is coming up next week rough trade nyc i do have to apologize because i couldn't ship fly or carry a pigeon um them over to you guys ahead of the weekend so i'm sorry about that but now is your chance so if you missed out and you want to get involved just tweet a song inspired by your record store day 2019 experience for a chance for it to be featured in episode 55 next week and please make sure when you tweet that you include a hashtag Rough Trade Podcast just so that I can find them. Cool. Um, so just also a quick reminder that remaining Record Store Day titles are available online now in the US and remaining stock in the UK will go online as usual a week later at one minute past midnight, which is this Friday night. Be there. Um, so coming up this week then, and I sat down and had a chat with someone a little closer to home and invited Rough Trade East sound engineer Ben Ellis onto the podcast. So I've got some really nice insight from him coming up in just a moment, plus some great music. But also this week, I caught up with author John Savage on his incredible new book, Documenting the History of Joy Division. Um, so we've got a lot going on this week, and I reckon it needs kicking off with a bit of rough and tumble. So here's Amal and the Sniffers' latest single, taken from their forthcoming self-titled debut out the 24th of May on Rough Trade Records. So this is I Got You. Yeah! 
that was Amel and the Sniffers. If you listened to Steve Lamarck's Roundtable on BBC Six last week, um, you probably heard me reviewing that very track because I bloody love it. Um, and I hope you do too. But next up, and I chatted to the very lovely Ben Ellis. So, Ben, welcome to the Rough Trade podcast. Hey, Emily. How's it going? It's going pretty good, yeah. Thank you very much for agreeing to come on. I've been trying to get Ben on the podcast for quite a while because for those who don't know, Ben is one of our regular sound engineers at Rough Trade East. Yeah. Um, But he also has many pursuits outside of his sound engineering and that's largely what I wanted to chat to him about on the show today. Yeah. Um, But I guess to start with, maybe how did you come to be a sound engineer at Rough Trade and how long have you been a sound engineer here? Because I think you were here before I was. I think so, yeah. (laughs) Um, I don't know how long I've been here. It feels like a couple of years maybe, but it's maybe longer than that. Um, My background is, uh, I I was a musician. Well, I still am. I'm a musician and I've kind of been playing bass guitar for 20 odd years now. Mm. And sound engineering kind of came... Just when I sort of had a quiet spell playing the bass and a friend had a gig, they lost the sound engineer somewhere and they phoned me up in a panic <laughs> saying, oh, you know about music, can you come down and yeah. sort of mix this gig for us? And it was in a pub in King's Cross. And at the time I was working in this rehearsal studio just up the road in the premises on Hackney Road. And I think they paid like 50 quid a night to go in and do that. And I went and I did sound for this gig. I had no idea what I'm doing. I really... I apologise if anyone heard it. <laughs> but um, I went to do the sound in this pub and they paid me 70 quids, gave me free pizza and fed me beer all night. And I was kind of like, hang on, this, this is, is this definitely is better <laughs> <laughs> than what I'm doing at the moment. So over the last sort of, I think it's sort of six years I've been doing it now, um, I've just kind of been building up my technical knowledge because as a musician, I really knew very quickly what I wanted to make stuff sound like. I just mm. didn't technically know all of the kind of dorky, nerdy, yeah. stuff you need to know to be able to do that so that's kind of been my journey with that and um i was introduced uh, to the gig at rough trade by a guy called martin ormond who's the head tech here uh and he invited me down to to cover a couple of shows he couldn't do and yeah i've just kind of been part of the furniture <laughs> making things too loud <laughs> in here for everyone coming to end stores ever since and it's great i mean it's a really lovely environment because you have these great bands coming to play in a tiny little venue. Yeah. We have a great system here and, you know, all of the engineers are real music fans. The same with the staff here. And it's just a really good little community. It's a yeah. nice place to come and be a sound engineer. Yeah. I was going to ask you actually your first impressions of the space, which you just lovingly uh, described there. But um, what was the first gig that you engineered for here? It was a really great... The first one was brilliant. It, it was a, a lady called Brick Smith who used to be in the fall, but she now has a band called Bricks and the Extricated. Yeah. And um, I sort of knew of Bricks, and we'd been introduced online by a couple of different people just saying, you guys should get together and do some kind of musical thing together because you'd both really get along. And it was just one of those happy accidents that when they came down to promote their first album and play in Rough Trade, that I was the in-house guy that did the okay. gig. So we did the show that day, and it was my first ever gig here. So it was slightly <laughs> intimidating having this person with this very rich and illustrious kind of rock and roll heritage yeah. and pedigree as my first show here. But it, it went great, and we've been kind of working together since. 
I've, I've been doing sound for them. They don't always take an engineer on tour. They play quite small places at the moment, but whenever they have a big London show, I always do that one. And we're really good mates, so we can yeah. meet up for lunch every so often when we're not Aww. on the road doing the things I had, doing. I had Bricks on the show earlier this year, actually. Yeah, she's so, pretty hilarious. Yeah, she's, she's a very funny lady. She can talk yeah. and she's yeah. really smart and, yes, says it like it is. She's great. I really like her. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's a nice one for you to have as your first gig, definitely. Yeah, it was and great. nice that you knew her. Yeah, that, it was all. It just <laughs> it was all a really a, a really enjoyable experience, and that band are great as well. Like the rhythm section of the two Hanley brothers who played in the fall for like twenty years. I mean, they are just mm. rock solid. They're all great players, and the whole idea of the name the extricated is that they've managed to extricate yeah. themselves from yeah. this great, the crazy world of Marky yeah. Smith. Uh, and they're now in this band together where they can actually make all the creative decisions themselves. So for them, it's a really empowering thing as yeah. well. So it's a really positive experience, yeah. yeah. Um, before we sat down today, I asked whether you could kind of pick some songs to kind of tie into what we're chatting about. So yeah. should we maybe play a Bricks, an yeah. extricated song? There's a song from the new record uh, that's called Alaska. I think I spoke to Bricks earlier and she said they've just... Uh, pressed up another 500 copies of her album in blue vinyl, which nice. is a really good present for anyone. Yeah. If anyone's yeah. up for like, doing a <laughs> bit of bricks. But my favourite song from that record, it's not one of the singles, it's the opening track, and it's a really kind of dark, moody track called Alaska. And when she comes on and does it live, she normally comes on in a blindfold, and they start with this big menacing bass and drum thing, and then oh, she wow. sings the whole song in a blindfold and takes a blindfold off at the end. It's really good. Wow. <laughs> it's a great way to open a show. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, if there's a song of hers that I'd like to play, it would be that one, definitely. Cool. Yeah. Let's put it on. Yeah. 
Bricks and the Extricated. Um, moving on maybe to some other gigs that you have worked on here. Does it always surprise you the kind of variety of musicians and bands that we kind of have in the store? Um, do you think Rough Trade's quite a unique place to come and see a gig in that sense? Because one week it could be some proper rock and roll and the next week it could be a poetry reading. Yeah, it, it's always really good fun. I mean, the, the thing with the programming here... Um, as an engineer, you sometimes you've been so busy you turn up and you're not quite sure what it is. Mm. You, you, I mean, I always do try and listen to it in advance if I can, but yeah. it's not always time. But if there is a surprise, it's never to date been an unpleasant one. Yeah. <laughs> it's always been like, oh, wow, this is nuts. Like, yeah. what if someone turned up with like four trumpets and a gramophone? Like, what have, <laughs> we got something like that, you know? Yeah, that's true. Uh, so from that, um, from an engineering perspective, it's a really fun gig to do. Mm. And also... Um, and a lot of kind of smaller gigs like this I mean it's th- sort of 300 that come into this room yeah. and watch shows yeah. when you're working venues that size you'll quite often have three sometimes four bands to contend with and when you have to mix four things in a night it can be a little bit exhausting on your ears mm-hmm. so you don't maybe give what you're mixing the full attention it deserves but here because it's just one band apart from the Rough Trade Recommends nights where you have three yeah, you really get to focus in on making it as good as you possibly can and picking up any details and quicks. So, so it's a really fun gig from a creative point of view as well. Yeah, and the lovely thing as well, um, a lot of the acts. Well, there's a mixture. I mean, there's some really big established bands will come and play here to promote the record, and that's always great to see them in little places. And they do normally bring their own engineer, so you're just kind of helping patch stuff and plug stuff in for them. Yeah, but a lot of the newer bands will turn up and they maybe don't have their own front of house guy with them so it's great to mix this great new music yeah it's a really exciting gig from that perspective and i guess they can really learn off you and vice versa yeah every gig is a learning experience yeah because there's always something you can learn even if it's how not to do something the next time which it frequently is but i think as long as you're open to that as a as a creative person in any aspect it's a happy yeah. thing to do you know? I don't think I've ever heard bad sound here and I have a lot of friends who come to gigs here and say that the sound is really good yeah and I it's guess, a great piece because I guess some people might assume record store it's a bit patched together maybe yeah. the sound's not going to be great but hey I can see this band in this space and actually it's really good it's great yeah I mean it's one of those gigs that in the sort of engineer circles of all the different people that work here, it's like if you manage to turn up here and make it mm. sound shit, you should maybe be doing a different yeah. job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, it is. There's a lot of care has gone into making sure. I mean, but you can't have the kind of like bombastic light show or the no. level of audio or sub bass that you have in an arena show. But you can do pretty much fidelity-wise everything that you do in a big show here. Mm. You know, the PA is that good. It's a little system so it's very lovingly put together yeah and just going back to when you are working with kind of these new bands and artists you must make a lot of connections yeah is there anyone that you've kind of met that you've gone on to work with because as you mentioned earlier you do a lot of work outside of engineering as a musician yeah there have been a few really great uh connections here the one that springs to mind that happened most recently um was anna calvi she um came in it's probably a few months ago now but she um had just been touring with her full band but she came in to do a a solo show here just Mm. her voice and electric guitar 
And her and her manager turned up. I thought at first her manager was just her mate. He was just such a nice, unassuming <laughs> character. And um, I, I'd been a really big fan of her music for quite a long time. So I, as soon as I saw she was playing here, I got on the phone to Martin. I was like, oh, yeah, can I do that one? Ah. I'd really love to mix her show. And um, she came down and uh, she did a, a little interview before the gig with a journalist and then played some songs. And then... Um, because I kind of knew what to expect from the way she sounded, I brought a few mics that I thought would really work well, like a ribbon mic for the guitar, which is a really old school way of micing guitar and some things like that. And her manager, who I thought was just her mate, came up <laughs> afterwards and he was like, oh, that's great. She's never really sounded that good solo before, you know? Oh, wow. Do you ever do other stuff? And they, and it's ended up in as we just came back from a European tour doing the same solo show in little venues all around kind of France and Italy and Switzerland, which oh, was wow. really cool. And that was purely off meeting but, um, her here. Yeah, yeah, we just had it off and, and had a laugh. But the funny thing, the thing that really got us talking when she was doing the interview, because I also play bass for Iggy Pop, and she mentioned in the interview that she really wanted to, to collaborate on a song mm -hmm. with him. So it just seemed kind of... Like a really great opportunity to go, yeah. hey, um, maybe I could try and help with that. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of how we got talking. So I have um, Iggy, the, my boss in my other yeah. uh, incarnation, to, to kind of thank for that oh. uh, that kind of full thing kind of coming together, yeah. which is a really beautiful thing. That's such a cool thing. And yeah. um, speaking of Iggy, you told me that you are going on tour in Australia. Yeah, in a couple in of weeks. A, in a couple of weeks. We have a few dates. Uh, we're doing two shows in Sydney Opera House, which is kind of bananas really yeah. it's such an iconic venue to be playing so that's definitely like <laughs> one to get a few photos of <laughs> and, and try and get in the memory bank and then we're doing a festival and another gig in Melbourne so I think we're there for about 10 days but yeah the, those um, outings are just always amazing he's still even at 73 I think he is now he's just a phenomenal yeah so much energy yeah it's yeah. incredible like, I don't if I'm half that energetic yeah. <laughs> at, at like this year I'll be kind of quite pleased uh, but, uh, yeah it's a really amazing and fun gig to be doing yeah that, uh, I saw him at um, Finsby Park last year were you playing that yeah, gig? yeah that was, that was oh nice. I should have waved I obviously would have been this tiny person in the crowd there's then. quite a lot of people yeah <laughs> I heard that people had to wait a really long time to get to the bar that yeah. was the main thing we heard yeah. about that gig I think I only saw one of his songs because then I was like I'm just going to pop and get a drink and then came back and like and we were done yeah, <laughs> it's too Queens of the long. Stone Age were on yeah <laughs> yeah I heard exactly the same thing oh, but I could yeah. hear it the whole time so it soundtracked my queuing so yeah oh great. that's great so yeah, there yeah. you go <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah thanks thanks Iggy oh. yeah. um yeah. maybe we should play another song before we yeah. chat on some more um and I think you wanted to play an Anna Calvi track yeah um my favorite song of hers at the moment it kind of changes because I have so many of her songs that I really like uh, but when she's doing the solo stuff, she does a really amazing version of this song, Indies of Paradise. It has this really kind of heavy guitar riff in it that she plays really full on. And then in the vocal section, the guitar really kind of comes out. So it's a really quite emotional take on it. I don't think we've got that here, but the album version is really amazing as well. I'd love to, yeah, I'd love to hear about that. Cool. Yeah. Let's put it on.
From rough trade a little bit and going back to like maybe how you got into music when you're growing up yeah. or how did you get into doing what you do because you've obviously played bass for many many years yeah um i kind of well i grew up playing um the violin my parents were really keen for me to do that from when i was like about five and then when i got to um probably about 10 or like <laughs> when i got to the age where you you were old enough to realize that the violin wasn't particularly cool that's <laughs> when uh when uh which is ironic i was speaking to someone about this last night i was kind of going outside right it's probably when i started noticing that i was interested to, in girls and mm. i thought oh, well they're not going to think the violin is very cool but yeah. ironically if i'd have held on i would have probably been a big hit with the ladies with oh, the violin really? but yeah but i ditched it and i got my parents to buy me a guitar oh. and they of course uh, bought me a classical guitar i was like no no not <laughs> that i want the electric one like the guy on yeah. top of pops yeah and um, and eventually, through one thing and another, I ended up playing the bass. And kind of as soon as I found that, I think I was probably like 17 when I did my first like kind of professional recording on the bass guitar. And I just really fell in love with it. It's got that thing where you're making a musical note, but it also moves a lot of air. So it's quite a physical mm. instrument. And it's also that kind of glue between the rhythm section and the, the melody. That, that yeah. It's just a really exciting, powerful kind of instrument to play. Yeah. Like, and especially live, you know, like, yeah, you just you really feel it. It's just yeah. such a, a powerful kind of yeah. force. For someone so, who's who's not in a band, and I mean, I played the flute till about the age when you said that you realised that it's not, it's not you, right? You had the same experience. <laughs> yeah, right. And now, and now I'm learning the drums, which right. I should have just done from the beginning. But hey, that's such a fun instrument to play. Yeah. It's such a physical, but quite thing. a lot harder than I think. I think it's just a stamina thing. Yeah. you just need to do so it. Tiring, yeah. So tiring, so tiring, but really, really fun. Um, lost what I was going to say now. I can't remember. Oh yeah, as somebody who's not in a band, I think you. I think it's easy to not realize how important the bass is. And it's I think if you took it away, you'd be like, it sounds 
just not complete. It's normally kind of what you dance to, mm. the bass line, really, because it's a thing that moves, yeah. that makes you want to move your feet. And it, it's a really good um, rule as a bass player. If you're playing and you don't really want to dance, you're probably playing the wrong thing because <laughs> if you can't dance to it, then no yeah. one else is yeah, going to no. fancy doing it. So it's always that feeling that when you want to swing your hips you're doing something that is landing in the right yeah. place like, definitely yeah. yeah and that makes it fun doesn't it yeah like, like, oh yeah i want to dance to that it's great yeah, yeah. Ah. yeah so when did you take it from kind of playing to kind of realizing this is what you wanted to do i knew from the beginning really that that was uh, even at the point like when all my mates went to university when uh, i guess we were like 16 17 i didn't even bother going because I, I knew I was just going to drop out and want to play in bands. So like my whole sort of 20s um, was spent in Glasgow. I'm from just outside Glasgow, but I moved there when I was 17 to make music. And I was kind of like signing on, doing cash. And I was a tour guide, mm. handing out flyers for people's gigs, like all that stuff you do to make money yeah. on the side. And playing in indie bands. And we made, it was a really great little scene then. That there was us, there were bands like Mogwai, AC Acoustics, like these people all making our own seven inch singles and releasing them, playing gigs together, like coming down to London. But I've got so many really fond memories of that kind of period of, of time. And we did that um, in that little sort of Glasgow community, which was at the time separate from London. and seemed more separated because the internet wasn't so prevalent then it was probably yeah. like 95 96 97 around that kind of time and um it was it was a really great formative experience because you got to develop musically and there was no pressure to do anything that was commercially successful you could be as weird and wonky as you wanted yeah and um we did a f we did one cool session with the band was called motor life Co. the band i was in at that point and um festival gigs and all that sort of stuff and then in the year 2000, I think when I was 25, um, I had a little kind of mini panic. It was the millennium. <laughs> and I had a lot of friends that were journalists and had sort of jobs where they were actually making money. And I felt, oh, God, I, I've been making these records for years and I don't have a... I, I, I still can't even afford, like, posh beans. <laughs> you know, like, I was, you yeah. know, it was like that. And it, it was really hard. So I auditioned for this band through an ad in the back of the Melody Maker, which was a music, an actual paper, music mm. paper back yep. in those days. They had classified ads in the back. Um, for a band called The Catherine Wheel, who are like a sort of shoegazy 90s band who were quite big in the States. And that was the first proper edition I'd ever really done. And uh, I got the gig and then I went on tour with them for about a year and a half in America, which really oh. was when I stepped up from yeah. playing in little venues in Glasgow yeah. to like doing that every day on big stages. And yeah. I think it was at that point that I was kind of like, oh, this can actually be a job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's not just something you do with your mates. Oh, so it was, that was really, f I mean, we did some great gigs with that band. They were all also about 10 years older than me. So it was like being on tour with like three big brothers. They just thought it was hilarious. I was this drunk Scottish kid just like wandering about, like yeah, getting into yeah. trouble all the time. They'd be like, you ain't get back here, <laughs> like, back on the bus, you know. So that was kind of like my introduction to proper musical touring. And from then I've just kind of, I moved to London shortly after that. And then just, I've done bunches of different stuff with different people other mm. since really. Mm. Yeah. But the, yeah, also doing, I think for anyone who is a young musician or, or um, producer or engineer or anything like that it was really really helpful for me when I started doing live sounds because um 
it it was a job that I could always get a gig doing. Yeah. And it, it can be that when you, you depend solely on doing something creative, like bass playing or, or any kind of creative art, actually, it can be really tough when you go through dry yeah. spells yeah. Uh, to be able to just kind of pay the bills. And if you do have something that's kind of related to your art that you can do that will make enough money to pay the rent, I, I just found that really, really useful yeah in my daily life to not have like a crisis where you're stumbling yeah. from one month a to bit the of like stability not. but yeah. it's still very much connected with exactly your day, your, exactly your day job. Yeah. and it kind of became for me a real labor of love like live sound i just did initially for the pizza and the beer and the 70 yeah. quid <laughs> but then i've ended up it's been a really incredible few years for me around the time i sort of started working here was when i started playing with iggy pop who's my biggest musical idol really mm. And then to be working with Anna Calvi, who's my favourite female singer. Mm. And also I uh, played recently with a band called Swerve Driver, who are like my favourite guitar band. Yeah. And the, I just keep getting asked to work with these people That's that amazing. I really love. And it, it's such a blessing. Yeah. But I think a lot of it does come from when you meet people not being in a place where you're desperate to do something. You can, yeah. You're in a quite content place. Yeah. And you can sort of say to them, I'd love to work with yeah. you. And more often than not, that yeah. kind of approach comes back with that, yeah, let's try and do yeah. something rather than, hang on a bit, you're being a bit needy. You yeah, know? So exactly. That definitely has Which I guess is why, you know, somewhere maybe like Rough Trade is obviously great. It's you great, just, yeah. People in and out all the time that, yeah. you know, you never know who's going to come up to you and... Exactly. Because you are just yeah. working, but someone will see that and yeah. say, hey. <laughs> yeah, and of all of the like, kind of house sound gigs that I do, this is probably the most fun one. You know, like it's it's easy, everyone's a laugh, yeah. it's like great music, yeah. you know, everything's really good here. So hey. yeah, I'm pretty lucky <laughs> to be <laughs> fat the guy. Thanks for having me. That's yeah. okay. I just wanted to ask you quickly, um you mentioned like you've had amazing opportunities to work with some of your idols. Mm. I guess we would all preferably want to work with the people who we admire the most. But mm. is it quite daunting in that sense? Like do you get really nervous? Particularly yeah. when you started out? Yeah, um, yes and no. I mean, you've got uh, to put yourself in that position where you're going to work with people that you have to have a degree of confidence in your mm. ability. But kind of with every um, new thing, you're a bit kind of like throwing yourself off a cliff edge yeah. to see if you can fly a little bit, you know. And it, that, I think, is part of the the fun of it. But also... I think if if you're in that situation, you need to realise that these people have asked to work with you for a reason. I mean, they obviously see something in you yep. that can add to what they do. And you just need to have that confidence in yourself to to see it through. And But also just the dedication to have the attention to detail that, you know, that that will make what you're doing great. You know, that's what... It's just a lot of work all the time, but that kind of work, it's not difficult to apply yourself to it's no. not like oh god i've got to go home and do my laundry or like, or like you know i've got this really boring thing i need to write yeah, about like, something oh my technical. god i have to go and play bass for iggy pop yeah like this week <laughs> funnily enough i've been learning we're going to do some stuff with synths from his album 70s album the idiot when we're playing in um australia so i've had to learn how to play the synth <laughs> which i've never i've never been a keyboard player yeah so the last couple of weeks it's just trying to get a noise out of the thing is difficult enough well i can get it to make a noise yeah getting it to make the same noise twice is an entirely different oh thing it's like and then the next time it goes <laughs> you're like how did that what? oh my god so like those kind of things i mean that's just fun isn't it? yeah like, i mean you would just spend a day doing that for yeah. a laugh but yeah that's yeah, yeah, come on, like, come to a gig anytime. Yeah. You're more than welcome. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah. Um, 
Ben, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks really for having fun. me. We'll have to have you back at some point. Yeah, We've done let's... some more stuff and then you can tell us about... You can, we can just have regular updates. What I'm in. Doing. Yeah, awesome. let's do it. Great. Um, just to play yourself out then, um, do you have a final track that you yeah, might want to play? This isn't really massively related to Rough Trades, but um, this is an artist that um, I'm, I met through someone I met here actually, so it is kind of related, it's slightly tenuous, but they're also on a small independent label called Rocket Records, who yes. have quite close ties with Rough Trade Records. And it's an album that I made with um, a lady called Josephine Owen and her partner, Frederick. Um, last year we recorded it in December, and I think it's coming out in April, and they're on tour in April. Uh, but this is, um, so I played bass on this record, and this is my favourite track but I, I probably should play the single but I'm playing the one I like the bass line <laughs> on the most. Uh, it's a song called Desire that Josephine sings in French it's super cool I really like it awesome let's put it on but Ben thank you so so much thanks for having me Emily
So thank you so, so much to Ben. I've wanted to chat to him on the podcast now for about six months. Um, he's just such an interesting and lovely guy, but he's so busy that I just never man- managed to pin him down. So finally got him like a couple of weeks back and we had a chat, so that was really cool. Um, and as you've just heard, some really great music taste as well. And we're going to continue with this theme in the next section um, and a slightly longer five to one this week as I spoke to John Savage on his new book, A Classic Story of how young men armed with electric guitars and good taste in literature can change the world with four chords and three and a half minutes of music. John Savage, welcome to the Rough Trade Podcast. Hello, glad to be here. Um, firstly, and no pun intended here, but it is a joy to have you on this show. Um, your book is incredible, um, so congratulations Thank you. on writing it. Um, just to kind of intro this chat, um, this is obviously about your new book, uh, This Searing Light, The Sun and Everything Else, which is an oral history of Joy Division, um, published by Faber and Faber. Um, It's a wonderful document consisting of three decades of interviews and tells how one band resurrected the city of Manchester and how they fueled a legion of fans with their music, lyrics and stage presence. But it's also a story of love, loss and inner demons. Um, Now, you chose to write an oral history for this story. Um, You've written about and personally documented Joy Division for many, many years. I guess this was always kind of there was always this kind of pressure for you to write this book at some stage. I wondered why you decided now was kind of the time to put it together and put it out there. Um, Well, these things are always intuitive, really. Um, I obviously have written a lot about Joy Division going back to 1977 when they were Warsaw. Um, uh, But it all came about because um, I, together with director Grant G, uh, we made this documentary called Joy Division uh, Mm. 10 years ago, maybe. 11 years ago now, maybe 12 years ago, but certainly in, in the mid-2000s. And um, if, as you know, if you're making a document, film documentary in particular, there's a lot of material you don't use. Mm. And all the group, the basis of the book is, in, is very long interviews with Bernard Sumner, Peter Hook, and Stephen Morris, uh, which I did for the film, which were very candid and quite revealing. Um, and that was the bit ba- I suddenly realized there's so much more that we didn't use. So that was the idea of actually um, turning the transcripts into the book. And then once I'd had that idea, um, it was a simple question of editing them together and then adding some new interviewees, using also other interviews I'd done with members of the group over the past 20 years, mm. and um, then adding new interviewees, which I did. So you're obviously a a huge fan of the band. Um, I think you've written that this is almost like a hidden autobiography for you of how you moved to Manchester, met Tony Wilson and various people associated with the band. Um, And and then how you kind of almost had to kind of translate the incredible impact that this band had on this city and how it was changing things. How did you kind of comprehend that at the time? Was was it something that hit you very suddenly or or did it sort of come over a number of years and gigs that you went to? Well, at that time, I was the writer for the Weekly Music Press. Um, There were four Weekly Music Papers. There was Sounds, Record Mirror, 
um, NME and Melody Maker. And I always thought it was my job on the music press to showcase new groups, mm. new talent. That's what was interesting to me. And occasionally to write about existing groups. But I always, you know, I was going out to a lot of shows. And it was my function, really. And that's what I wanted to do. My antennae were out. I was good at my job. Um, to I was interested in new sounds and, and, and sounds that reflected my environment and what I felt rather than just going with the herd. So I was always looking for new things. Um, and I was very into, um, after punk, I was very into electronic music. Um, that, and the electronic music that was coming through, that seemed to be future, more futuristic than a lot mm. of punk, mm. which had become very, very formulaic. And um, I came across Joy Division when they were Warsaw. I perceived something in them. And I wrote snippets about them in the music press, 77, 78. Because of that, Rob Gretton, I got a, I got a letter in the post from this person called Rob Gretton, who's their manager. He said, Rob Gretton, Joy Division manager. Well, John, you've written about our group. You're obviously interested. Here's a tape of the LP we've just recorded. They did an LP for RCA, which mm. never released. It's crap, but I thought you might like to hear it. <laughs> and we've also reissued our, the, their first EP, which was crap, but we thought you'd, you'd like to hear the new version. So I was quite intrigued by this because here's somebody, you know, being quite honest about things, mm. quite blunt, mm. and not saying, oh, they're wonderful, the best thing in the world. Yeah. It was a completely different approach. And so I went up to Manchester to work with Granada Television, a job that Tony helped me to get. And the kickback was that I would write about Tony's groups, in particular Joy Division for the music press. He knew that I was a music, um, you know, I was, a, I was a journalist at that time with access to lead reviews and features and that kind of thing. So it was, um, but I was swept away by Joy Division. Mm. Um, and I saw them a lot in 1979. And because this Manchester was a new city for me, I'm a Londoner, and I'd never spent any time there except for a weekend before I moved there. Um, Joy Division helped me to orient around the city. So they actually helped me see and feel what the city was. Mm. So I didn't see it through art or I didn't see it through books. I saw Manchester and interpreted Manchester through Joy Division, in particular Unknown Pleasures. That's kind of a way you describe their receiving their music and their manager saying it's crap, like a bit of a flip on its head of, I think you said, where you didn't, kind of force any friendships with bands because at some point you may have to kind of say this is crap and you didn't want to get kind of backlash so it's nice that you kind of were presented with something that was supposedly rubbish but you actually found this incredible gem from it yes well well actually the first Warsaw album wasn't a gem but <laughs> well, <laughs> it was okay <laughs> but that wasn't the point I was intrigued by this thing I was intrigued by the letter and I was very much intrigued by Manchester Music because mm. I'd, I'd become, I'd seen Buzzcox a lot. I was very friendly with them by that time. And yes, it was awkward. Um, I'd had a very bad experience with Susie and the Banshees and I'd had a very bad experience with The Clash, both of whom I'd sort of been friendly with. I'd go and see them at backstage mm. or something. And then they made crap second albums and I had to say so. Yeah. And that caused problems. And so I was a bit, after that, I was a bit wary of being friendly with bands. And also they were a bit younger and also Joy Division very self-contained, like a lot of groups are. There's that group thing, you know. Mm. And because they were childhood friends, Bernard and Peter were childhood friends and Stephen and Ian were, had known each other when they were at school. They were, they were very tight. Mm. It was a very tight-knit group. 
And I was a bit older anyway, and I was friendly with um, Tony Wilson and Rob Gretton and Martin Hannett, who's their producer. And those are the people I used to hang out with. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you if you had any thoughts or kind of reaction to that infamous Manchester Sex Pistols gig in, I think it was 76. Um, I assume you weren't there because you hadn't moved to Manchester at that point. No, I don't no, know if you travelled no, no, to no. go and see it. But obviously that's where Joy Division, as we know them today, formed. Um, what were your impressions of that gig and maybe how it changed music or obviously produced Joy Division? Well, what everybody says about that show is that actually the Sex Pistols weren't necessarily as bad as everybody said, but there was something about them that lit a spark and persuaded people. I mean, the great thing about getting involved with any creative endeavor is thinking you can't do it because you have to have expertise. Mm -hmm. And in a way, the great thing about punk in general was that suddenly it reduced the, the time between having an idea and executing it to almost nothing. Suddenly there was that brief window where whatever you wanted to do, you could do it. So I wanted to do a fanzine. I wanted to start writing. So I produced a fanzine really quickly. And again, uh, if you wanted to be a musician, suddenly the path was clear. You could actually do it, which is an amazing phenomenon because um, culture is so hemmed in by gatekeepers. Mm. Um, and so that was a wonderful freedom. And of course, all these groups uh, interpreted that in a different way because they were different people. So... Um, very much. There were two Sex Pistols shows, one in June and one in July. Mm. Um, and there are quite lengthy descriptions about them in the book. Do you think it was where you said there, it gave people this opportunity to kind of just go out and make music and that was amazing. Do you think it was also a little bit of Manchester, Manchester kind of saying, well, this has come up from London, but hey, we can do this too and we can do it better and make it our own? I don't think initially, but I think that came fairly quickly and the spurt of that was Buzzcocks issuing their own record, the mm. start of indie music, basically, mm. uh, without which this shop wouldn't exist, probably. Um, Spiral Scratch in January 77. Um, and then that gave people the idea that there could be an independent scene um, that could be record labels based in Manchester, that, you, that Manchester could be autonomous from London. Um, at that time, the music industry was completely centred in London. Um, and it was very monolithic. Um, so I think the factory records idea that you could be a, a label and a, and a cultural force in Manchester came from that spark, the combination really of the Sex Pistols and mm. Buzzcocks. Mm. Through the process of writing this book and collating these interviews and meeting these people and witnessing for yourself firsthand Joy Division in their element, um, What's most surprised you about the band through what learnings you've had, maybe initially from your initial getting that music in, on your desk? Um, I think the thing, there's two things that surprised, well, not surprised me. The one thing that surprised me was how, um, is ha the fact that they were artists. Um, and I think that's really important to state. They wanted to make art. They didn't want to copy anybody else. They couldn't copy anybody else. They wanted to do something that was their own, mm. that was their own expression. And I think that's very important, I think. And they weren't necessarily thinking about money. Money wasn't so important in the late 70s as it is now. It's part of the degradation of society. It has become so important. Mm. But it wasn't so important. You could do something with not very much money. And the fact that these four young men from disparate backgrounds, they were all grammar school. They weren't complete, you know, they weren't mm. totally blue collar, but they were all from, all from grammar school. 
um, could make this wonderful music and wanted to make something that was wonderful is to me incredible. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they were doing it for that reason, they weren't thinking about it, they weren't thinking about, is this going to sell? They were just doing what they felt and what they could do. Mm. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons that Joy Division has lasted so well. Yeah, I think they say in the book, don't they, they didn't do it for any sort of career as such or to make money. It was purely just because they wanted to make something beautiful. Maybe well, out of something that wasn't, that was well, ugly. Well, people didn't think about careers so much then. It was mm. quite, it's quite a different time. It wasn't, in a way, although it was economically tough, it wasn't quite so socially tough as it is now. Mm. The pressures weren't quite so great. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was before security cameras. It was before social media. There were a lot of malign things that exist. I'm not saying social media is totally malign, but it does add to pressure. Mm. Um, there weren't the same kind of pressures. No. I mean, there were pressures, but they were different kind of pressures. And it wasn't quite so fast and manic and tough. Things are really tough today. Mm. Uh, I think that's for, particularly for young people. And I think that's terrible. It makes me very angry. Yeah. You speak of pressures, and I think obviously one of the huge themes in the book is the kind of darker side of Joy Division and what was going with Ian through the time. Um, in the book, I think it's um, Peter Hook describes when he got the call saying that Ian had died and it was just this kind of numbing effect and no one really knew how to sort of deal with it. And I guess that was a mixture of guilt, should they have seen that he was in this, battling this terrible illness and they didn't necessarily do enough to help and this is what had happened and I guess this disbelief and there was also this you know we would we would just carry on there's no like oh joy division ends here because Ian has died we will go on tour tomorrow you know etc etc I think you describe yourself a similar sort of numbness when you learnt the news as well um I guess that's something that is a huge topic because today it probably would be so much more different Totally, this, totally. You know. Well, I mean, in a way, that's where the disguised autobiography comes in, because the book is still an, an attempt by me to explain to myself, really, how powerful Joy Division works. They were the, probably the most powerful live band I've ever seen. I mean, not necessarily in terms of volume or coherence of music, um, but in terms of performance and total involvement. Hmm. And I've seen Iggy Pop, and I've seen Sex Pistols, and I've seen Buzzcocks and Clash, etc., James Brown, etc., 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 and none of them were like were like Joy Division. So it's my attempt to really get to grips with that and also to get to grips with Ian's death, which is an event that took me a long time, even though I was on the periphery of events. Um, all I remember of May 1980 is absolutely nothing. I don't remember anything about what happened then. So it's obviously a blank, which I've been trying to work out why there is a blank. And it's obviously to do with inability to deal with death. Mm. And uh, everybody's very young. That was, I just, in fact, just lost my grandfather. And I didn't know how to deal with that. I was very close to my grandfather. Um, so when you're young, you don't know what to do. Mm. And particularly, it's 40 years ago. Nobody knew anything about anything in terms of um, people's awareness of mental health, et cetera, today. Also, in terms of treating Ian's illness, um, the treatment would have been much better today. Then he was just put on very, very heavy tranquilizers, which just made everything worse. Mm. I think his um, Ian's, Ian's wife described how he always spoke about, you know, wanting to die before 25, this kind of Jim Morrison-esque kind of exit. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that was just a kind of cover story for the, the pain he was in? Do you know what? I honestly don't know. I put... All those quotes seen by people who were close to Ian because I thought they were viewpoints worth including. I actually don't have an opinion. 
Um, all I can say is that having put together the book and going through it sequentially, day by day, month by month, I had a greater sense of why Ian would have done it. Doesn't mean I know why he did it, but uh, to me, it's a simple. The, one of the key factors to me is the severity of his illness, and um, which is very severe and um, unpredictable and um, very, very, um, very, you know, quite life-threatening. Every, every, every fit was mm. very severe. Um, and then the fact that he would have fits on stage, this is not sustainable. Uh, it's not something you can continue to do. Yeah. And he was very driven by the group and he couldn't do it anymore because he was having fits on stage. And then the drugs he was on, and then the pressure of wanting to be both with Deborah and both with Anique, wanting to have both, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all builds up. And if somebody is predisposed towards suicide, then they're going to do it. Mm. It's the same with Kurt Cobain. Mm. If they're going to do it, they're going to do it. You can't stop them. I guess we've touched on a lot here, but also not a lot in terms of the whole scope of the book and everything that's in it. Um, I could sit here and talk so much more about it. But I guess the thing that stands out the most is, as you said, quite in the beginning, these songs, you know, they don't date. They will never get old and kind of lost and tired. They just wrote, in the end of the day, incredible music born from a love of wanting to write this music and and songs. Um, what do you think that people reading this book will take, as aside from reading any other book that may have come before it or any other kind of reference that they might be able to find? Well, I hope they get some understanding of what actually happened and where Joy Division came from and the time and place that spawned them. And I hope they want to go and listen to the records. You know, I mean, I'm still amazed that anybody's, in, to be honest, that anybody's interested in Joy Division. I had no sense really when uh, I was doing the book that they were, as, I had some kind of sense, but I didn't realise they were as big as they were Yeah. now. Well, you know, there was this kind of, I guess, appetite for this type of Yes, history. it is. That also is a surprise to me, um, which is not maybe the best thing to say marketing-wise, but it's true. <laughs> um, and the book was quite a personal endeavor. And then suddenly you finish, you know, you finish the manuscript and then the announcement is made of publication. Suddenly you get interest from around the world. Mm. And you go, oh, they really are a big group. Well, why are they a big group? Because... There's something about their music that is timeless, that transcends time. This is music that's 40 years old, before a lot of the um, teenage or 20-something listeners went well before they were born. Mm. You know, it'd be like me listening to, I don't know, marching band music from before the First <laughs> World War. It's really weird. Mm. Um, and it's really weird what's happened to time in popular culture, but that's a bigger, bigger topic. But obviously... I think also because Ian was so committed to his performances, that really strikes a chord with young people because that's what they want. They want some kind of authenticity mm. um, that they don't get from elsewhere in the culture mm. um, that they can identify with that is youthful. Um, and so that's why I think there's... And also the fact that the music is actually really good. And also it's a finite catalogue. Mm. It's easy to grasp. Yeah. You've got Unknown Pleasures, you've got Closer, you've got the bits in between, a few live albums, that's it, boom, mm. boom. Mm. But it is such a different experience, isn't it, listening to the music as opposed to, like, watching... I mean, obviously now we can only watch the videos that were taken then, but um, the footage of him live, it's just... It's quite mesmerising. Yeah, well, it's great that people can still see, can see it and that it has, you know, that it is on YouTube mm -hmm. and um, 
you know, that's that's great for me that there are live shows coming out. People can people can have a sense of what they were like live. Mm. John Savage, thank you very very much. Thank you. Enjoy your event tonight, which you're about to go and do. But thank you for chatting to us, and we'll see you soon. Thank you very much. So thank you so, so much to John. If you haven't got your hands on a copy of his book yet, I can't recommend it enough. It's really, truly flipping fascinating. 
So I'm going to wrap up episode 54 right here. Thank you so much for listening. If you're new to the podcast as of records today, welcome. Thanks so much for taking a chance on us and I hope you stick around. Um, But to play us out, a rough trade tip for 2019 body type are the Australian four-piece articulating their ideas through jangling guitars and scuzzy lo-fi production. Their first two EPs are being pressed to vinyl, set for release this June, and we have a Rough Trade exclusive slime vinyl edition, limited to 300 copies only. It says on our website that listening to body type is like when you heard the big moon for the first time. So I'm totally on board with that. Totally joyous. I can't disagree. Um, So yeah, check out this track. This is Body Type and Stingray, and I will catch you next week. Bye.
Rough Trade Radio. Reviews and subscriptions help to support what we do. So if you like what you hear, then please rate us on iTunes.